Early in 1999, I turned on the morning news to hear that a public figure had been sacked from his job for making heretical statements about the afterlife. A news headline grabbed my attention. Who could this be? Was it some radical bishop or cardinal? Was it some errant theologian or evangelist? Actually, it was none of the above. It was the manager of the England football team, Glenn Hoddle. And uh, I don't know if you remember that. He declared his belief in a particular version of reincarnation, stating that the sins that we have committed in this life are punished through disabilities in the next life. And as you can imagine, there was an outcry. Groups representing disabled people objected strongly and Glenn Hoddle got sacked as the England manager. And beliefs about death and about what happens after death, what lies beyond death, come in all shapes and sizes. And just for a moment, take uh, some thought about the, the major religions of this world. A Muslim believes that a Palestinian boy who is killed by an Israeli soldier will go straight to heaven. A Hindu believes in karma, that the person must return in a different body in the next life to pursue the next stage in his or her destiny, not unlike the views of Glenn Hoddle. The Orthodox Jew believes that a righteous, the righteous will be raised with new bodies at the resurrection. A Buddhist hopes to disappear after death, a little bit like a drop in an ocean. There are generally three views of what happen, happens following death. First of all, there are those who believe that no part of the individual survives death. Uh, the moment you breathe your last is when you cease to be. And this belief is very much of an atheistic kind of belief, that, uh, belief that there is no God. And when you die, it is no more significant than perhaps a tree dying. You simply go out of existence. You feel nothing, there's no consciousness, you know nothing. And this particular view was quite popular in Corinth, in ancient Corinth. And on a number of um, graves, there was the inscription which said, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And that's the view also of many people today. The second view is that only part of us survives death, and that part of us is the soul or the spirit. And that the body decays and eventually goes back to dust, but the soul continues. And this view is called immortality of the soul which might surprise some of you, is not the Christian view. Uh, many of the ancient Greeks held this particular view and uh, they saw the body as not particularly important and that the, they saw the body as a tomb or a prison which housed the spirit or the soul and the spirit or the soul was the all-important thing. And then there's the Christian view, which is the whole person, body as well as soul, is to be recovered. And I'm sure that you know that God's view is that our bodies are all important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul challenges the Corinthians that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And as we look in the scriptures, we can see that the Bible shows us that bodies are important. 
that it was through creation that God created our human bodies, that both men and women are made in his likeness. We know that through the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth, that when God enacted his plan for the salvation of human beings, it was through Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. In the, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But also through the resurrection, Jesus rose triumphant from the grave in a new body. And one day, when Christ returns, all Christians will also receive those new bodies. And that, surprise, surprise, is our subject matter for this morning. We're going to be looking at the section, picking up where we left off last week, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, and we're going to read through in a moment's time, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 10. And we need to remind ourselves that Paul didn't write in chapters and verses that this was a letter, and not to see chapters in isolation of what has gone before and what's coming next, and we need to, to remember that. But this morning, this section is all about, earth, uh, all about bodies. First of all, in verses 16 to 18, in chapter 4, he speaks about earthly bodies that are wasting away. By the time we get to chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he is telling us um, that the things that we have done in our earthly bodies, whether good or bad, will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And in between those two sections, we've got all about our resurrection bodies. So it's all about bodies this morning. Okay. If you've got your Bibles, and I do encourage you, bring your Bibles, please, to uh, Sunday mornings. Um, we're starting reading from chapter 4, verse 16. I'll also put the, the words up on screen for you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent we groan, and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to clothe, be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident. I say I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And as I said with last week's passage, we started with the word therefore last week and we are starting with the word therefore this week. And the word therefore, when you see that in scripture, it's obviously telling us there's a link going on 
from what Paul has said previously to what Paul is about to say. And we should never read the chapters in isolation. Now, for those of you who have been around for a few weeks, you are probably easing your way into 2 Corinthians because it's probably the most difficult of all of Paul's letters. Uh, Very, very difficult to get a grasp of where he's coming from. And sometimes he does a little bit of this and he comes back on himself. and You think, wow, not really sure I can understand Paul's train of thought here. So don't beat yourself up if uh, you're struggling a little bit with, with this. But together, isn't it great that we can just walk through these scriptures and hopefully that we can gain some understanding uh, for our lives today. The context is that Paul is defending his ministry against some false teachers. These false teachers had infiltrated the church at Corinth, the church that Paul had founded, and they were certainly not making life easy for Paul. They accused him of not being a genuine apostle. They questioned his credentials. They challenged his motives. And Paul's life was full of trials. You know, if you think your life is bad, well, (laughs) nothing really compared with Paul. He was being uh, hammered with his trials spiritually, emotionally, and also physically. And that's where we pick up today. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. You see, Paul was not for giving up. So outwardly, he says, we're wasting away, yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Now, outwardly, Paul is feeling that he is just wasting away, and it's quite understandable. When you think of the hardships that he went through and all that he suffered for taking the gospel which God had given him throughout the Roman world, he was pouring out his life for the purposes of God. And as we read Paul, we find that he is inspiring as well as astonishing. Because if you work out where he was going on his missionary travels, in around about a 15-year period, he travelled about 13,000 miles on foot and about 3,500 miles by sea around the Mediterranean lands. And if the stresses and strains on his body were potentially causing him to lose heart, He says that there is something going on as well that is causing him to gain heart. Well, what is that? He says that he is being renewed each day on the inside. And Paul, in some respects, was a little bit like new wine put in old wineskins. On the outside, he was being worn down. But on the inside, he was a pensioner with attitude. He really was. He was vibrant. He was spiritually alive. I love the words of Isaiah, and I'm sure they're favorite words to many of you, in Isaiah chapter 40, that God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In our passage... Paul's next verse. I love it. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Now the temptation sometimes is to read Paul's words and say, well, Paul might have had troubles which he regarded as light and momentary, but mine aren't. He has no idea what I'm going through. If he had my problems, he wouldn't be saying that my, my, that, that my problems are light and momentary. In fact, they're all, they're all encompassing, they're crushing. 
But you see, that argument isn't valid. It isn't valued until we know what Paul's troubles were. And Paul's troubles are given to us a few chapters on in chapter 11, verse 23. And we get a little bit of an insight into what Paul was going through here. Paul says, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again, five times. I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. On five occasions, he'd been lashed on 39 occasions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in the open sea. I have constantly been on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the county, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Okay, Paul wins. He wins, yeah? Those were his light and momentary troubles. And you see, what Paul is doing here is making a contrast between the troubles of this life and the glory which is far outweighs them. It's that great verse, isn't it, in Romans 8, where he says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, on the scales of heaven, the worst of our suffering here on earth is not going to be compared to the glory that's awaiting us there. And I love the message as it puts it, these hard times are small potatoes compared with the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. Maybe about 23, 24 years ago, uh, Julie's parents uh, took Julie, me, and our three kids away on holiday to Menorca. We had a fabulous time, and um, one day we decided to go for a long walk, and the weather was glorious, and the sands were white, and the sea was turquoise. And we, after walking some distance, we noticed a couple frolicking on the edge of the water, throwing frisbees. And apart from their straw hats, they were absolutely starkers. They were completely nude, much to the amusement of our kids. So we, obviously, as responsible adults, we wanted to move quickly on. We didn't want, you know, sort of our kids to be a part of this exhibitionist behavior. The trouble was that, unknown to us, instead of walking away from it, we were actually walking right into the center of the nudist beach. And by this time, our kids were very hot and bothered. All they wanted to do was swim. And my mother-in-law, who doesn't have the best of health, she was absolutely exhausted. So shamefully, we pitched camp. <laughs> it was embarrassing. And in case any of you are wondering, no, we didn't. Okay, so I just wanted to take that away from your, your minds and allow you to get on with the rest of the service. No, we, we stayed in our swimsuits, not our birthday suits, okay? But as my mother-in-law retells that story of the day, which she has done on many occasions, she always comes out with the phrase, didn't know where to look. 
funny, I don't remember it that way. She seemed to... No, we won't go there. (laughs) After all, this is being podcast, isn't it? I don't know where to look. You see, that's the problem with many people who struggle through the tough times of life. They don't know where to look. All they see is the grey clouds, the struggles, the difficulties, the worry, the turmoil... But Paul was different. He did know where to look. He said he fixed his eyes not on what is seen. In other words, the trials and the difficulties and the problems of life. Rather, he fixed them on what is unseen, on that which is eternal. He recognized that the troubles were tangible but also temporary. You see, even in the worst case scenario of his life being taken from him by martyrdom, which it was, he remained untouchable. And that's where we pick up chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now this earthly tent that Paul is referring to in these words is his physical body. And he says if this, this, physical, if this tent, if this physical body is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. What's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about a five-bedroom detached with a swimming pool in the back garden. He's not talking of that kind of thing. What he is speaking about here, in, in building from God, an eternal house in heaven, is a metaphor for our new resurrection bodies. You see, our bodies right now, our earthly bodies, are like tents. In other words, they're temporary accommodation. Now, for years, many in our uh, church youth, or going back over many years, have uh, gone, been taken to Soul Survivor to live in tents for a few days. And on day one, there's huge excitement and there's very little sleep. But living in tents loses its appeal by day five, and people are ready to go home. They're ready to sleep in their own beds. And Paul says that our present bodies are just like those flimsy tents that can be taken down and folded away because there is coming a day when we will have an eternal house in heaven. And then, well, actually, a year ago when we studied 1 Corinthians, we had a little bit of a look at this in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll put those words up on screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. Paul tells us what this this new body is going to be like. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see, what Paul is saying there, that this tent that we are living in now is temporary. It's going to be sown as perishable, but one day it will be we will reap the imperishable. So what does he mean? We all know fruit as perishable. A couple of days after its sell-by date, it goes all wrinkly and spotty and saggy, no longer crisp and firm and appetizing. And so too, he says, with the bodies. Maybe not as quick as fruit and veg, but they nevertheless are perishable. Now, our bodies started decaying the moment that we were born. Just wonder you feel good about yourselves, all right? Okay. Now Paul says that 
the body that will be raised on resurrection day when Christ returns will be nothing like the body that goes into the grave. He says it will be imperishable. It will not be prone to sickness or decay or aging. It's going to be perfect in every way. There will be no wheelchairs in heaven. There will be no need for hospitals or opticians or walking sticks or medicine or cancer. Uh, or there will be no cancer. One Bible commentator by the name of uh, Lawrence Richards wrote these words. I, I have shared these with you on one occasion before. Dad didn't want to go with my sister and me to meet with the doctor. He knew what the verdict would be. Cancer. Later, Eunice and I told Dad what the doctor had said. The cancer was all through his body. It was just a matter of months. I moved into my childhood home to take care of Dad in those last weeks. At first, he sat out in the living room with me and talked and watched television. As a fighter, Dad overcame many physical adversities during his 86 years. Now he felt frustrated. This was something that he couldn't fight. Soon he was unable to sit up and he stayed in bed. And as the pain got worse, I gave him regular shots of morphine. I listened as he ranged over his life in his delirium. And I watched his body shrink. When the men from the funeral home took his body away, he seemed no larger than a small life, a small child, curled up on his side. This wasn't the father I'd known in my childhood, so big and strong. It wasn't my fishing companion of our later years. It couldn't be, and yet it was. As Paul says, the body that is sown is perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness. But the glorious message of the gospel is that the shriveled body that returns to the earth is nothing like the body that will be raised. I will see my father again. I share with him in the coming resurrection, and when I do, the body in which he dwells will be imperishable, glorious, bearing no mark of man's weakness, but only the mark of God's power. That's the vision that I have of my dad, not the withered frame that lay dead on the bed in my boyhood home, but the vibrant form of the man I knew, vitalized by God's transforming power. You see, the body that goes into the, the, the grave, into the ground, is weak. But it is a body that will be raised in power and strength. It will be a body that will never embarrass you. It will be a body that will have strength to serve God 24-7. You know, some people's view of heaven is that it will be full of armchairs with R.I.P. embroidered on the headrest or maybe lounging around on clouds playing harps. I don't think so. I believe that we will be actively serving God and that's why we need new bodies. You see, our earthly bodies are not made for either heaven or for the new creation. And that is why we need a new body, one like Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a body that could be touched. Thomas placed his hands in the place where the nails had been. He had flesh and bones. He had breakfast that he made for his disciples. He could eat food. He was clearly having a physical body. But there were also times that he appeared in a locked room. Another occasion, he disappeared before the presence of two of his disciples in Emmaus. And I would say that the body of Jesus is the prototype of resurrection bodies for all. I love this verse, 1 John 3, verse 2. When he appears, says John, we shall be like him, 
go back into our uh, reading for this morning. Chapter 5, verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Now, the older and more infirm that we get, I think the more wonderful this idea of a new body sounds. And, you know, for some of us here today, maybe, you know, think, oh, my word, the aches and the pains. Um, Maybe those who have just nodded off to sleep, you know how difficult it is, but you're not hearing me. You see, there's a wonderful passage, and we don't have time to go into it this morning. It's, um, it's in that great chapter, Romans chapter 8. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage, and I probably we could speak on that for five years. It's, it's, it's amazing, very, very deep as well. And in that passage... Paul says that the whole of creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. You see, God's plan of salvation, and this is where so many Christians get it wrong, God's plan of salvation isn't just about you. It isn't just about you maybe one day leaving this world and going to heaven. It isn't just about your salvation. But God's plan is to restore the whole cosmos all of creation, that there will be new heavens and a new earth. You know, on Friday, we held a short service of committal for the remains of uh, Andy Dennis. And in that short time that we had at uh, uh, Glasgow Cemetery, I read from Revelation 21, and it says in that chapter about God wiping every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, that the old order of things will be passed away. And one day when Christ returns, all of creation will be freed from sin and sickness and evil as God reverses the effects of a world in rebellion to him. You see, there seems to be great confusion about the afterlife, not just amongst those who are non-Christians, but those who are Christians as well, because most Christians, and I'm sure most of us here today who would call ourselves a Christian would believe that after this life, our body decays, it goes back to dust, and our soul lives on in some kind of disembodied, non-material state uh, and in, in a place that we call heaven. Now, you see, if we stop there, our views are incomplete and actually wrong. For there's more. There's more. Those who die now before Christ's return, indeed, will live in the presence of Jesus. They will be conscious. There will be that place of bliss. Jesus, he said to the thief on the cross who said to him, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. There was that sense of consciousness. But you see, that's only a temporary measure. And that's what Paul, I think, is talking about here in verses uh, 3 and 4 when he speaks of the word uh, of naked, being naked and being unclothed. I think that he's referring actually to this time between his physical death and the time that Jesus comes back. Because the clear teaching of Scripture is that one day Jesus will come back. But hang on a second. What about those who die now, because we know that on that day when Jesus comes back, we will receive new bodies. 
so that we will be prepared to all, for all that God has for us in future. But what about now? What are between now and then? What about this intermediate state? And that's what theologians call it. Well, we will be in the presence of the Lord, but we will be awaiting that day for our full redemption of our bodies. You see, when Christ returns, those who are alive will receive new bodies. And when Christ returns, those who are dead will also receive new bodies to serve the purposes of God on the new earth. And I would suggest to you this morning, maybe, just maybe, you need to get used to serving the purposes of God now in this life. Get some practice in. Because that's what you're going to be doing in eternity. Get used to the idea. There's nothing quite like it. Some of you might have come across this man, Tom Wright. Tom Wright was the, the former dean of Litchfield Cathedral and also the Bishop of Durham. He's also one of the most brilliant, brilliant New Testament scholars alive. And he speaks of the resurrection of the bodies as the life after, the life after death. I quite like that. Okay, let's move on. Verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now both Tim and Dan have spoken already about today being Pentecost Sunday and that Pentecost celebrates the time of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, the birthday of the church, 50 days after Passover when Jesus was crucified, 10 days after he ascended into heaven. And Paul writes here of one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit has been given to Christians. And that is to guarantee what is to come, to guarantee our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment on us. You know, when you're purchasing a new home, you're required to put a down payment, a deposit to secure the sale. Well, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is that down payment, the deposit which guarantees everything that God is going to do for us. But he's going to carry through what he has started in our lives. Paul writes to the Philippians that God who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's really interesting that the word here that Paul uses for guarantee is a word which is still used in modern Greek, some 2,000 years later. And it's used in modern Greek for engagement ring. And Paul is sort of saying here that the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to guarantee that one day we will be the perfected bride of Christ in eternity. Wow. Paul continues, verses uh, 6 to 9. He speaks there of his confidence in the Lord, whether he remained alive or dead. And what he's saying in these few verses is much what he says in somewhere else when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has total confidence in God. And he is not afraid at all of death. He's not afraid of dying. And I would say this morning, to all of us, 
that if we have entrusted our lives to Jesus Christ, then we can share Paul's hope and confidence that absent from this body one day is going to be present with Jesus. See, I know that uh, death does bring anguish and fear to many people. And yet, it's been my experience to see Christians as being altogether different to those who have fear and anguish in death. Yes, there's always loss. Of course there is. And I love the words of Paul somewhere else when he says that we grieve. But we don't grieve as others who have no hope. We grieve because we're human. We will miss our loved one, but not in the same way. Because we know that death has lost its sting. I heard a lovely illustration of uh, the, uh, the other day of, of death being like a wedding. That might surprise you. You see, during a wedding service, a minister will ask the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And it's a, a question that I only asked last weekend in Nathan and Amy's wedding. And Amy's dad, David, replied with, I do. And there was a, a formal handing over of responsibility to Nathan, whom Amy loves. And that was both a happy and a sad moment. It was certainly happy for Nathan, and it was happy for Amy as well. And it was also happy for her parents because they wanted to see the very best for a daughter and they, they loved Nathan. And, but it was also a sad moment. There was a sense of loss for the bride's parents. And for some parents, that loss is even greater when the young couple might move away from town or move abroad. Or because perhaps they're concerned with the person that she is marrying is not going to love her like they did and take care of her in the same way, which obviously is not the case with Nathan. You see, the one thing that takes the sting out of death is that we are entrusting our loved one to the one whom he or she loves most, who is also the one who loves our family member even more than we do. How good is that? <coughs> Verse 9. We make it, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, after all of this discussion, and, you know, just to read those words that we read together from chapter 5, it's, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Or it can be, at least. And Paul seems to mix all of his metaphors between earthly and heavenly and clothed and naked and being home in the body and away from it. And you think, Paul, what are you on about? Well, he seems now just to come to his bottom line. And he says, our goal is to please him. Our goal is to please him. And why should it be our goal to please him? Well, there are many reasons for that. And Dan, who is speaking next week, is taking on the baton from where we are leaving uh, today. I'm sure that he will talk about some of these other reasons. But Paul mentions one of them here. And I just want to finish with this this morning. Paul says that we make it our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some of you might be saying, what on earth is the judgment seat of Christ? And what's it got to do with us? 
Well, in Roman cities, and Corinth was, I know in Greece, but it was a Roman city, the governor in the Roman city sat at the judgment seat. It was also called the beamer. And he sat there for court cases. And in Corinth, the beamer, or the judgment seat, was one of the most impressive structures in ancient Corinth. It was located in the centre of the marketplace. It was covered in marble. It had an elaborate carved moulding. And it was the place where the, the governor or the judge would make judicial pronounce, pronouncements. And I don't know if you remember the story. <coughs> it's found in Acts chapter 18. When Paul brought the gospel into Corinth, he himself needed to stand before this judgment seat, before the beamer. Because he was being accused by some Jewish people of promoting a religion that wasn't approved by Roman law, which meant blast, uh, which was uh, treason. And that was, that was a, quite a trying time for him, because the governor could have had him executed for that. And no doubt that Paul and the Corinthians have vivid memories of Paul standing before this judgment seat, before the beamer. And Paul uses those shared memories of him standing there to remind the Corinthians that all of them, Paul included, will one day stand before another beamer, before another judgment seat, not of Gallio, not of Pilate, but of Jesus. And that they would be judged for things done in the body, whether good or bad. Paul is saying that what we do with our bodies in this life really matters. The judgment of Christ that he is talking about here is not a matter of whether one day we'll get into heaven or not, because that has already been decided. That was decided the moment that we trusted our lives to Jesus, because we are saved by God's grace, by his unmerited, unconditional favour towards us. He offers salvation as a free gift which we receive by faith. And Paul writes, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's this judgment then? What's, what's Paul talking about? Paul here is referring to the way that we have lived our lives as Christians and the way that we use our bodies. That even though one day we will be with him forever, there is still an evaluation, a judgment of the way that we have lived our lives here on planet Earth. One day we'll have to give an account, all of us, all of us, for the way that we have lived our lives. Have we been faithful with the gifts that he has entrusted us? And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a day when we stand before Christ and we can't rely on anyone else. We can't rely on anyone else's faith, our parents' faith, our pastor's faith. We can't say, well, I, I was a part of Elim Church. It's a time when all of the secrets will be known. It's a time that we can't waffle our way out of things. We won't be able to claim ignorance. And I imagine that we will be asked at that judgment seat about whether God in our lives was in the driving seat or was he in the passenger seat or maybe he was in the back seat. And the unnerving thing about this is that we will not be able to pull the wool over the eyes of Christ who is asking us because he already knows the answer to that question. 
Have we been obedient to the things that he has revealed to us through the scriptures? Have we lived our lives to honour his name? Have we sought first his kingdom? Have we loved other people just in the way that Christ loved us? How have we used our finances? Have we been big-hearted and generous or have we been tight-fisted and mean? Have we seen ourselves as owners or stewards of our resources? Have we looked out for the widow and the orphan? Are we people with a servant heart? Have we lived sexually pure lives? Paul previously challenged the Corinthians, if you remember the series we did last year in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, about the way that they were building their lives upon the foundation of Christ. And he said that there's two ways of possibly building upon this foundation, upon our salvation. You can either build with gold, silver and precious stones or you can build with wood, hay and straw. And those things were just representing both the good and the bad which uh, Paul speaks about here in verse 10 of, chap- of, of, of our chapter this morning. But if we are building our lives with wood, hay and straw, then on the day of Christ's judgment, everything that we have lived for in this life will be burned up. That's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? And sometimes, you know, the imagery that we have because we're separated from Paul by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. What would Paul say if he was speaking to us today in the 21st century? I think that he might speak about someone who had written a book and they had taken their time and their effort for many long years or perhaps done a research degree after many, many years and they have this on their laptop and they're just about, and I know that there are probably seven or eight authors from this, from this church family, so you'll, you, you'll probably get this. So you've got this, you've been working on it for, 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 for a number of years and you're ready to press the send button to the publisher or to the university and you press delete by mistake. And then a dialogue box appears on your screen, wanting confirmation that you really did mean to delete this file. And someone walks through the door and they distract you and you press yes instead of pressing cancel. And you lose all of that work. I tell you what, my my heart is pounding at the very thought of this. And I'm sure that there are others here as well. So your effort and time has amounted to nothing. Zilch, zero. And Paul says that that would be a reality for some Christians on that day. And that's why he says it's something that we need to do, that we need to make it our goal. To please him and to receive one day that well done, good and faithful servant. I love the statement of John Wimber, I've used it many times before, where he says... Live your life before an audience of one. Yeah, that's good advice. Let me just finish with the words that we, 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 we started with. They seem to have disappeared. No, they haven't. Okay.
from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honour God with your body. Let's pray together, shall we?